Company Watch Financial Analytics. Hello and welcome to the Company Watch Coronavirus Podcast. I'm Joe Kettner, CEO of Company Watch, and I'm joined by Nick Hood, Financial and Commercial Risk Analyst. Welcome, Nick. Hi, Joe. Hi. We are recording today's episode at lunchtime on Friday, the 12th of March. Um, it's quite a strange milestone, actually, for us at Company Watch, because it's actually a year to the day since we asked all staff to work at home. Um, that was initially for two weeks. And, and here we all are a year a year later, coming around to second lockdown birthdays and anniversaries. Um, I think it, it's kind of an interesting um, week, really, because Nick and I certainly wouldn't consider ourselves to be in the Andy Haldane camp of cheery optimists. But, you know, there's no doubt that the vaccine rollout, schools being back this week, the approach of the 29th of March and some more freedom and then 12th of April and, and hopefully more freedom is really positive. But at the same time, I think for the first time, we've really got a, a, a final cutoff in sight for some of these government support schemes and the reality of that and planning for what happens once these safety blankets are being taken away is really starting to to be apparent. So we've got that kind of mixture very much of of good and and, and bad. Um, Lots of things to cover this week, leading on with ONS um, figures that were released today on um, two interesting issues. So January um, GDP figures and also the input import and export figures particularly for the eu so nick do you want to start us off with those right. uh, okay let's 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 go there now don't we live in an interesting world where the pandemic has uh created a situation where gdp falling by almost three percent in a single month is actually seen as good news <laughs> Because, we're expecting the expect expectations around five percent drop, wasn't it? Yeah, four point four point nine, four point nine percent. So it fell by two point nine percent in in January twenty one. That comes with the usual health warning that was so brilliantly explained by um, Adam two episodes ago. That looking at a single month's data is is a very dangerous thing. But nonetheless, mm. we've got January. So we're 2.9% down in the month. We're 9% down by comparison with the last pre-pandemic figures in February. And we're 4% down on October's position, which was what the ONS describes as the initial recovery peak. Right. Um, okay. And if you break it down a little bit further, services were unsurprisingly down 3.5%. Manufacturing was down 2.3%, and the only uh, positive area was construction, which was up 0.9%. We could talk endlessly about why that's positive, but not today. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, just to look back to pre-pandemic, services are down 10%, manufacturing 5%, and construction is still down 2.5%, although it's right. obviously doing very well. And just looking very briefly at a little tiny bit of detail in there, within the services figure, obviously the consuming, consumer facing sectors like food and accommodation and and to a lesser extent retail are struggling. But interestingly, the worst hit area was this big catch all category called wholesale and retail, which I'm. I sort of think we ought to talk about in the context of Brexit. But the second worst hit area was education. Now, this is really interesting. This comes back to this um, issue we've talked about before, about the way the UK 
measures GDP compared to the way the rest of the world measures GDP. And here they look at outputs rather than inputs. So for something like health and education, they're not so much looking at salaries that are going in, but they're looking at what is coming out at the other end, which is a difficult thing to to measure. So with education, what's the argument? Education, education, uh, the the schools were closed. So output output was apparently down 16.3%. I say nothing. On the other hand, within that services uh, number, health was up 8.7%. And um, uh, again, forgive my, uh, you may just catch a hint of cynicism here. Uh, the principal reason for that was that they added 400 million to GDP for the vaccination rollout and 3.2 billion for the rise in test and trace. Or should I say test? Because I'm loath to say that tracing, tracing yeah, is increasing. Mm-hmm. So three and a half billion of our GDP in January was to do with um, uh, sticking needles in people's arms and getting them to stick swabs up their noses and down the back of their throats. And your point here is that lots of the the workers that are employed or engaged to do this, it's volunteers, mm. and there's also healthcare professionals who would be paid anyway. Anyway, they're just having a transfer of duty. So this is where I, I think it's very difficult, isn't it, with these um, with these numbers? It's laudable mm. that you're trying to get some kind of view of outputs, but I think it it does um, mean that you do get some funny um, anomalies. So again, I guess it comes back to the point that really the quarterly numbers are the ones that we that we yes. want to look at um, to get yes. a kind of smooth version of, um, of what's actually happened. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and moving on to Brexit, um, the numbers for January, again, remember it's only one month and it's a very, very odd month, mm. or so Lord Frost would have us believe. Um, exports to the EU were down by 40%. Uh, that's £5.6 billion. Pounds, and imports from the EU down by 29%. Um, now, clearly, there was stockpiling in December. Yes, and, and, so it's and a primates. high month. So, so we're looking at two things, which is A, December was artificially high, high um, and, so, and January was always going to be, be low in that context. Yeah, and obviously, the, the, you know, let nobody um, deny this. Um, there is disruption and disturbance, not just getting across the border, but actually what can and can't now be traded. Yeah. Because of issues with um, uh, transport costs, uh, import duties, VAT changes, etc., and it's worth noting that German imports from the UK were down fifty-six percent. And before anybody says that's all to do with stockpiling and the pandemic, um, that was the only significant drop of uh, German imports from any country. And there are similar uh, patterns emerging in Italy and and, mm. and with France, but you know too much detail. Uh, there was also an interesting um, survey by an outfit called Make UK, representing manufacturers, mm-hmm. in the Guardian, um, who they did a survey of two hundred quotes leading industrial companies, unquote, uh, and they found that seventy four percent of these two hundred were facing delays on EU imports and exports. Half of them were seeing increased costs, and a third of them were seeing lost sales. So anyway, we'll watch that space. Yeah, yeah I think it's it's true, isn't it? I think we need to, just with the um, GDP numbers, we need a little bit more 
um, data to get to start getting a better idea of direction of, of travel and whether this is a blip or whether... I think that's right. And, and, and I don't think we should leave the topic without um, noting that uh, Charlie Bean at the the Office for Budget Responsibility um, slapping down the Bank of England <clears throat> and and I think ONS as well um, and saying that um, he felt that the talk of a consumer spending boom at the end of the pandemic was not credible. Mm. He's entitled yeah. to a view, you know. I mean, again, I think it comes back to his view that the the it's typically kind of more well-off people. I think we've talked about this before, more yeah, well-off yeah. people who are saving money and they're not necessarily inclined to go and, and spend all their um all their savings again. So again, well, it's a, a, sorry. You know, sorry, Joe, there I am. Um uh, as as I said to you the uh, the the other week, um I didn't expect in my 70s to be um uh adding to my capital rather than burning it. And I think there are lots of people in the sadly, I think there are lots of people in the same situation and equally and the and the uh, at the other end of the scale with with those um poor um job losses that we've we've seen across the retail sector in particular. Um and it's just a very unequal um experience, isn't it, of the of the pandemic, which we've we've known about, you know, across the across the board, both on the healthcare outcomes and on the economic outcomes. Um I suppose that that kind of leads us on to um poor economic outcomes council um finances so we've had a report this is from the telegraph i think you um you put this this up from i did it's the national audit office um reported that councils had suffered a 10 billion pound hit in the pandemic that's 7 billion of extra spending and 3 billion less revenue and the report warned that uh in their view 25 out of the 337 uh statutory authorities were at uh, high or acute risk of financial failure. Uh, and that is despite the government having injected £9 billion worth of emergency funding. And you notice, you know, the, 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 uh, the spread, there's the council's losing £10 billion and the government putting £9 billion in, and it would appear that the gap of a billion is enough to tip 25 mm, into potential wow. insolvency. And, it's and they're not that, named, are they? We, we don't know who these are, do we? No, we don't. But 30% of councils are now predicting that their deficit in the current um, financial year, which ends this month, obviously, um, will be more than 5%. That, of course, is relevant um, to the fact that the uh, councils are now able to raise council tax by 5% without a local referendum. Yeah. I, I mean, council tax is not their only only income. So actually, a five percent hike in council tax won't plug a five percent deficit in spending, but it'll go mm. a big way towards it. Yeah, but then I think all those other things that that where the councils are getting um, revenue from, you know, um, business rates, um, as we know, the, the holiday, and I guess that's where the, some of the funding is coming from government to, to make up those holes. But even so, you know, footfall, a lack of footfall is going to have an impact on um, councils' ability to, to generate revenue um, from city centres and so on. It, um, it is. That takes us on, doesn't it, to the um, – this is, this is really a sort of um, call to arms. Um, the insolvency service is consulting about um, what's good and what's not good about the insolvency rules 
2016, the sovereignty rules. Sorry, um, as an XIP, this is. I'm going to say I'm so, going to leave this to Nick because my I, I I didn't look at this and I confess I got like halfway I think through reading and I thought this is really in, in Nick's area of expertise. So I think I shall leave this leave, leave this on to you. Yeah, I mean, I mean, this is not some sort of, oh, my goodness, these things aren't working. The insolvency rules are the detail that go under the Insolvency Act. Uh, and, and they're, they're the, this is how it's going to work on the ground right. area mm-hmm. of the legislation. Now, a little tiny bit of history, which is relevant. The Insolvency Act started the, the modern insolvency um, regime in 1986. The insolvency rules 2016 were a 30 years on, oh my goodness, a lot has changed, let's sort this thing out. Now we've moved another five years on, and there is an obligation in the secondary legislation that brought in the insolvency rules for the insolvency service to consult within five years. And that's what they're doing. Now, um, what I've suggested- And they they presumably don't have any obligation to act. I'm guessing. I guess it's just a consultation. Okay. It's absolutely. Now, um, I will not go into the detail here because you will all be fast asleep after about the third topic that they want to discuss. But um, Jo's very kindly said that um, she will post a link to the consultation uh, page on the government website. And really, my call to arms here is, uh, you know, one of the major stakeholders in the insolvency regime in this country should be creditors. And you know, as an ex-insolvency practitioner, uh, I can tell you that I used to get severely irritated about the lack of engagement by creditors. Um, even if they're only going to get one P in the pound or nothing, the fact remains that they are part of the community that regulates and polices what goes on mm. when a company goes bust. So uh, you know, I really do encourage the credit community to take a look at this. And if you've got a point of view, then for heaven's sake, express it. Because the government it's true. has a habit of listening. Answer, and you don't have to answer everything. I think that's the other thing. You know, I, I, I've approached these consultations in the past thinking, oh my goodness, I can't put a, a, a voice in here because we can't cover everything. But actually having then spent some time reading responses, very often um, people will just put in one or two points and that is still, they, they still get looked at and it's still worth um, worth making those points. Yeah. So yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll pop a link on. And I suppose actually this that kind of leads in quite nicely. And, and this is kind of breaking news um, that we're hearing this morning. So we don't have a huge amount of detail, but it's interesting Virgin Active have uh, um, come out with this restructuring um, plan or, or kind of noticed that, that they're going to be um, having a, a restructuring um, plan. And there's the thing that jumped out on me was this kind of cram down provision on landlords. And Nick, perhaps you can just talk us through a little bit what that, that means and the implications around that. Yeah. Um, yeah, let's try and make this brief. Um, and, and as um, uh, insolvency for, um, uh, for the uninitiated as, as, as we can, normally landlords get oppressed through a CVA. Now, mm-hmm. the... Uh, a CVA can be passed if 75% by value of the creditors who vote agree. I think you know, our audience will know this quite well. Yeah. And there's been a huge amount of cramming down of landlords using that mechanism. It's been you know, endemic in, in retail and in hospitality and one or two other areas. The reason I think Virgin Active has been forced into going down a different route and using this new procedure under the Corbyn Insolvency and Governance Act that was passed last year, 
and to use a restructuring plan is because I think the landlord's debts in their case are too high. Oh, I see. To get it, to, you know, they, they so won't... exceed the 25% that yeah. they would... Okay. Yeah. And, and frankly, um, uh, their advisors would be telling them that landlords right now are sufficiently cross about what's happened to them, um, what the commercial community have done to landlords over the last year or so and, and earlier, that I think the threat was that, you know, if the landlord's claims were anything like 25%, the answer is don't go there mm. because you may, you may well lose. So, again, it'll be interesting to see how this one plays out. I think at the moment the threat... Sorry, the the uh, the warning that a restructuring plan is being contemplated is is an overt threat to the landlords to play ball. Oh, really? Uh, because and to not have to go down the and it's about it's around ranking of creditors. Is that right? In the um, restructuring plan, allowed you? To... Yes, I mean basically under restructuring plan, this is this is the first time in this country we've uh, had the ability to uh, to cram down to force a class of creditor to accept something that they're not willing to. And, and what it means is you rank the creditors in, in various classes. And if all of them agree except one class, and provided that the proposed plan doesn't um, uh, unfairly discriminate against that particular class, then the court can approve the plan despite the opposition in this case, of the landlords. So I think that's where that one's going, but okay. we'll watch it. Um, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll pick, keep a tell. As I say, I think this, is, um, this has just been reported today, and I don't think there's anything immediately um, being being done. I think it is, as you say, it's a kind of a shot over the bowels to say this is what, um, this is what we think we, we might have to do. Um, the, the thing that I was quite interested to, to pick up on this week, I think it was published on Wednesday, um, British Business Bank does a, a review. It's been doing it for, I think, the last seven years on the state of small business finance markets. Um, and I wondered, I was I was kind of fairly familiar with the one they published, awful timing last year, probably about this time last year, talking about the state of um, small business lending. And of course, that was kind of ripped up within a few months of, of it being published. Um, they did undertake the same um, research this year, which is a great one, in 2020, which is was really interesting. I mean, as you can imagine, the 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 headline figures are pretty are pretty stark. So we have um, an eighty two percent higher figure of gross lending to SMEs compared to twenty nineteen. So we're up to one hundred and four billion pounds of um, of lending, and it's some really it's a, it's quite a long. It's about one hundred and forty page reports. Again, we'll we'll send a link, and there are some various infographics. And I just thought it's worth picking out a couple of things that that struck. Um, struck me on this. Although, as I say, there's plenty more um, in there. Trade credit, I will say, has always been a poor relation in this survey, and, and this this year is no exception. So we've got one page of on my 139 that talks about it. Um, but it makes interesting reading. Again, you know, as in previous years, um, the use of trade credit is about 37%, which is about the same as, as before. Um, but medium-sized firms particularly, so that's their kind of 50 to 249 employee bracket, um, increased trade credit usage um, by about 13% in 2020. Um, so again, you know, we've been talking about this availability of trade credit being a real um, key part of the, of the recovery. So the fact that that's increased already just shows that, that being able to offer, being confident to be able to offer um, credit terms is going to be really, um, really important. Um, the other thing that I, I picked up on was 
Um, and again, it's something that I think we've talked about. Or I might have done a, 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 a CICM um, presentation on this about the impact that the the business loans and the government backed business loans that have had and will have on the lending um, arena in 2021 and, and beyond. So the the interest rates on these loans were incredibly low by normal. So I think 2.5% there was the, the, the cap that could be charged. Um, and the report talks about the fact that the, that the banks do have capital and there is space for lending to increase. I think Nick and I would, would say, but they're going to be spending their time trying to to make sure they get paid from the loans because, of course, the banks are responsible for collecting these um, loans. Although there's a government guarantee, the banks, I think, have got 12 months that they've got to try and collect them before they can call on those guarantees. Um, and it talks about the Challenger Bank and, and British Business Bank was set up um, to try and, you know, it's in the wake of the last financial crisis to try and, um, and make more financing options available for SME. So Challenger Banks have been a really big part of what they've tried to encourage. And it's quite shocking. So the um, the Challenger and Specialist Bank's share of total lending fell 31%, um, sorry, fell to 31% in 2020. And that had been 48% the previous year. We're back to 2013 levels, basically, of, of lending. Um, and I think that there is this, this sense that the challenger banks didn't really get involved in the in the C bills and B bills lending because of the low interest rates, which makes it kind of uneconomic um, to to be involved. Um, and this this idea that when lending comes back, the the, the rates of interest that will have to be charged um, for for it to be economic will be quite a shock, I think, to to businesses who have been used to to borrowing on quite low um, low rates. And and it kind of comes back to a a point that was made in the previous survey, where I think um, something like 73% of SMEs said that they would rather forego growth than borrow to fund growth. Yep. And I'm not really sure that there's there's much evidence of this change, because I think the borrowing, we're looking at the, the responses to the survey here, borrowing has been about immediate cash flow, not about funding growth, so survival rather than growth. So um, it's interesting. I mean, there's, there has been a rise in deposits. So there's a 20% rise in, in deposit holdings of 252 billion. But we know that a lot of that is the loans that have been put in deposits rather than spent. So lots of interesting yep. things. Sorry, I'll just <laughs> Nick is sitting there. Nodding away. No, 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 um, no. I mean, I'm uh, delighted. I, I, I hadn't actually read the report, so um, silence was golden in this particular case. <laughs> well, that's a weekend reading for you, Nick. You've got 140 pages. What I, um, what I did into. read, however, was the um, the British Chambers of Commerce published their monthly economic review for March, um, and uh, almost all of it was stuff that we already knew and which we've talked about extensively on these podcasts. But uh, again. Joe's going to be busy posting links, but we're, we're going to post a link to this report and we're going to direct you to take a look at the chart, the good news, bad news chart, which is the last page of the report. And it basically looks at, I can't remember now, about 20 economic indicators month by month from January 2020 before the pandemic through to January 21. And if something is heading in the right direction, an indicator, um, it's green. If it doesn't move, it's yellow. And if it goes in the wrong direction, it's red. 
there's an awful lot of red <laughs> on this yeah, chart. Yeah, I mean, it's, but, it's quite a shocking, you know, if ever a picture spoke a thousand words, I mean, that that is is it, isn't it? So um, that, that is. So do, you know, if you have a moment, um, you know, s- scroll past the stuff we've already talked to you about. Just have a look at that chart because it is absolutely, it's compelling in telling a story of what's happened in, in, to the economy over the last year. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, we'll we'll post a link. I think we've got three links to post. So we'll the look at the insolvency service um consultation, the British Business Bank, um, small finance uh, market report, and the um the BCR. BCC. BCC, BCC, sorry. BCC. And, and, and if we have time, Joe, can we can we get philosophical? Oh, this is your- <laughs> <laughs> your favourite bit, yeah, Nick. I will hand over to you for your. Well, um, there's a very, um, very much respected writer who I think I've referred to before, um, called Simon Nixon, who writes for the Times on business and economic matters, and he, um, from somewhere, plucked a statistic that the because everybody was predicting that the pandemic and the working from home and the lockdowns would produce a baby boom. That's right. mm-hmm. It's produced a baby bust. The uh, birth rate in uh, January has dropped. Mm. Now, obviously, um, um, it's not just the UK, is it? This is this no, is across Europe. It, um, it's worldwide. It's it's worldwide, but it's particularly mm-hmm. acute in in Europe, and it's and it's not a pretty sight in this country. And of course, you know, well, apart from a slightly sort of prurient, well, we're clearly um, if if people. Um, are, are, are being naughty in uh, in lockdown. They're being careful as well. Um, but to take it more seriously, what Simon Nixon says is, and it's a, a phrase that I've rather constructed, which is, you know, that deflationary demographics are not good for the economy mm. because it has serious financial uh, fiscal uh, implications because you get falling tax revenues from the productive earning element of, of society and because of the demographics um, of the residual um, uh, population, then you get rising costs for elderly care and, and pensions. And, and you need to see this um, alongside the fact that there are estimates that 1.3 million people have left the UK since the start of the pandemic mm. for all sorts of reasons, a lot of them from hospitality, um, because they, you know, they basically, and because their living conditions here were so poor, that it was easier to go home yeah. than to than to stay here. Of course, a lot of them can't come back now under the immigration rules. So I think there's some will, but there's a net loss. So that and and a falling birth rate. Um, at some point in the future, we're going to look back and think that this was our Japan moment, where the demographics. Yeah got seriously uh, nasty for e- for economic growth. Yeah, it's interesting. And again, I, I suppose we'll see more on this. We're just at the beginning, aren't we? We're just really mm. at the beginning of seeing this um, impact. So again, something to watch out for over the over the coming months, um, I would say. Indeed. Good. Well, thank you very, very much, Nick. As always, it's been a pleasure to, to talk. Oh, it's um, been fun. And thanks to everybody for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.